The year is 1997, and this is a podcast about... An evil podcast? Zip it. Okay, this is a podcast where we will be breaking down... An evil podcast? Zip, 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 zip. The movie, Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery. everyone and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where we are watching the best movies of all time or so they say. We're going to figure out what are the best movies of all time and I'm so excited to sit down and talk to my co-host and friend Amy Nicholson who is a film critic for the New York Times and Variety and makes my opinions, uh, you know, pale uh, in comparison. But you know, oh, I, not at all. Not at all. I'm so excited to talk to Paul Shear, the flesh and blood actor, director, writer who has the full bodied perspective that ooh. I, I dry newspaper writer can always be informed by. Well, I'm going to bring you home to my parents to introduce me like that whenever <laughs> they see me. Uh, it's and, you, the flesh and blood Paul Shear. They don't believe in me having flesh and blood. They think more of me of a fembot, but a male bot. Um, Amy, this movie, Austin Powers, is so interesting because we were talking about James Bond. And the only way to kind of look at James Bond, I think, is to look at the legacy that James Bond has had on cinema. We we talked last week about some of the films that followed in its footsteps, whether it's in like Flint or that movie, uh, you know, OSS 117. There's so many of these movies that pay homage to Bond, but I think the most famous one is Austin Powers. Austin Powers, the movie that arguably made it impossible for us to ever do a funny Bond film ever again. Well, you see, this is what I argue. I think, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit, Mike Myers is doing more homages to comedy than he is to actual action and adventure films. You know, I think a character named Alada Vagina might have something to say to you about that. And Amy, I want you to brace yourself because I'm going to give you a fact about one of the actors in this movie that uh, took my breath away when I read it, and it's uh, pretty dark, but uh, probably the subject of a podcast, a true crime one out there, and if it's not... We're going to give you a great idea for that. So without any further ado, let's unspool it, baby! Yeah! The year is 1997, and Mike Myers has not been seen in years. The King of Saturday Night Live had back-to-back movie hits with Wayne's World and Wayne's World 2, but when So I Married an Axe Murderer flopped, a movie I deeply love, his movie confidence took a major hit. And in 1995, Mike Myers quits Saturday Night Live and vanishes. He forms a band. He does some soul searching. He thinks about his comedy origins. He thinks about his dad, who died a few years before and inspired his love of comedy. And then he summons up his comeback character, Austin Powers. Austin Powers, on its surface, feels like, okay, this is Mike Myers doing James Bond. But there's so much more to it than that. I mean, this is Mike Myers embracing what his dad loved, which was British comedy, right? His dad loved Peter Sellers and Alec Guinness. And this movie celebrates this 1960s cool, poppy Beatles in help all the way to this British television series called Adam Adamant Lives, which came out in 1966, which pretty much has the exact same premise of Austin Powers. But this is Mike Myers kind of at... His most Mike Myers-ist, if that's a, a way to describe it. it, it parodies a lot. And I think that this movie has more 
similarities to films like Airplane and Top Secret than it does uh, straight up James Bond parody. I mean, you could not even underestimate how weird of a project this is when Austin Powers comes to fruition, because not only is it this like strange comeback from Michael Myers, where's he been? What's he up to? It is the first comedy film directed by a director who's now just known for comedy, Jay Roach. But in 1997, Jay Roach was considered a guy who made artsy Hitler Holocaust movies. You know, the kind of movies that premiere at Cannes. He was not a big budget comedy director. And that film is actually totally real. He made an entire film where Hitler is like staring at himself in a mirror and monologuing. That movie is called The Empty Mirror. And if you want to hear a clip, hey, you know what? Let's just play it now because it's so weird. This is Jay Roach's first movie before Austin Powers. The sun is uncontrollable. Unforgiving with the sun, you can't shape and sculpt reality. It is only the commitment of Mike Myers that got him hired to do this, and great. But Mike Myers actually does have this history of working with non-comedic directors. It was, you know, Penelope Spheris, who was known for these amazing documentaries. Tommy Schlamy, who is Sorkin's right-hand man. And even uh, Stephen Shurek, who right now... Uh, does Umbrella Academy and Punisher on Netflix. These are all directors that are much more versed in drama than they are in comedy. Maybe that's a choice that he's making so he could be responsible for the comedy and they can be responsible for actually setting a great story, tone, structure, and design for the film. I'm so glad we're doing Austin Powers. I forgot how much I love this movie and I forgot how perfect it is as a follow-up to us just doing Goldfinger. Okay, This story is the story of a spy. His name is Austin Powers. He is thriving in the swinging 60s of London. He's like the sexiest, grooviest dude. His chest is somehow shaped like a penis. Uh, He gets every woman. He gets every velvet jacket he wants, except he cannot get his arch nemesis, Dr. Evil. Dr. Evil escapes him by cryogenically freezing himself and blasting off into space in a Bob's big boy statue. So Austin freezes himself too. They both get thawed 30 years later and they attempt to pick up their kind of retro hijinks cat and mouse game in the modern 90s where they are very embarrassed to learn that casual sex is not cool and that a puny million dollars ransom for not making all the volcanoes on earth explode is so, so beyond not cool. I mean, can you just imagine Mark Zuckerberg? Not cool at all. Um, As Dr. Evil and Austin Powers adapt to the 90s, Austin is powered with his ex-partner, Mrs. Kensington's daughter, Vanessa, and he must decide if he can evade these killer robot fembots and femme fatales like a lot of vagina and commit to one woman, commit to Vanessa. And Dr. Evil meets his test tube son, Scott Evil, and he must decide if he wants to love him or kill him. Elizabeth Hurley plays Vanessa. Seth Green plays Scott Evil. There's a hairless cat named Ted Nudgent. Ted Nudgent who plays Dr. Evil's cat, Mr. Bigglesworth. And Mike Myers, of course, plays both Dr. Evil and Austin Powers. Take a listen. It's called blackmail. As you know, the royal family of Britain are the wealthiest landowners in the world. Either the royal family pays us an exorbitant amount of money or we make it seem that Prince Charles has had an affair outside of marriage and therefore would have to divorce. Prince Charles did have an affair. He admitted it, and they are now divorced. Right, okay, people, you have to tell me these things, all right? I've been frozen for 30 years, okay? Throw me a frickin' bone here. I'm the boss. Need the info. 
Austin Powers was released on May 2nd, 1997 and did okay. Uh, Seth Green has talked about how the premiere was so kind of dinky and badly attended that nobody even bothered to take his picture on the red carpet. Uh, instead, the press merely, they mostly kind of just pestered Hugh Grant, who was there because he was dating Elizabeth Hurley. You can hear them here just being like, Hugh Grant, you seem interesting. What does the term shagalicious mean to you? Elizabeth's looking shagalicious tonight. Um, yeah. Uh, she's more shagalicious than shag. I'm shagadelic tonight. Yeah, this tie is shagadelic. Yeah. Then the film is released in the UK on September 5th, 1997, where they thought it would do really, really well. However, that was one week after Princess Diana died, so nobody in England was in the mood at all to laugh at anything British. However, there is another however, because 1997 is right when the DVD home boom is popping off. Rents for Austin Powers are going through the roof. Sales of Austin Powers are going through the roof. And then they do a sequel, and the second film makes more money in its opening weekend than this first one did in its entire run. And then they made a third one, and that has Beyonce, and that's about all we should say about that. Well, it also has your favorite Tom Cruise as Austin Powers. Oh, if you don't think I pulled that clip, I have pulled that clip. (laughs) (laughs) And as always, Amy, what was on the radio? Set the stage for us just a little bit. Because we know Candle in the Wind is going to come on in just a couple weeks. But what (laughs) do we got before that? Uh, Actually, a a song that is not so different in the emotional spirit as Candle in the Wind. Uh, What was in the zeitgeist when Austin Powers was released here in the States on May 2nd, 1997? It was also the death of a national icon who had just died three months earlier and had a number one song still on the charts. Um, A song whose video, which you have to go Google, is itself an homage to spy movies. There's like this gold-fingered tinted hue over everything. You're watching a yacht, the Florida Keys. There's high-stakes gambling. There's a spy stakeout. There's helicopters blowing tons of cash off a table. And yes, that table is belonging to the notorious B.I.G. and Daddy. The song is hypnotized, and you can hear the spy sound effects in the music video in this clip from the intro. Spies popping off, 97. Amy, I can't believe we have now done two Mike Meyer movies, but we haven't even touched Eddie Murphy. We haven't touched uh, some giant comedy stars, but we are going back to the well. And I think both Mike Meyer's movies that we covered, Shrek and now Austin Powers, basically live in this world of you forget that the original was good because it's gotten so chewed up and spit out by culture. Like, oh, I'm tired of this. I don't like this. This is all lame. You know, everything that feels cliche about this was not that in the beginning, but these are two franchises that really ran it into the ground. <laughs> I absolutely forgot how much I love Austin Powers until we rewatched it for this episode. I was like, Austin Powers, it'll be good for some giggles. We'll see. I was howling the entire way through this. This film is just a joy bomb. It just explodes onto the screen. The you know, people are dancing everywhere. Everyone's grooving. It feels so happy. It and, feels so happy and so stupid at the same time. And it comes in under 90 minutes, which I think is the key to all feature-length comedies, and especially a film like this. Like, 
We are out before we even know it. But I have to say, in re-watching it, I think the things that I respond to the most are the things that are not necessarily the direct parody. I, I think when I look at this film, the funniest moments are the incredibly original scenes, the scenes like Dr. Evil in family therapy. Oh, no, please, please. Let, let's hear about your childhood. Yeah. Okay. Come on, come on. Come on, come on. Very well. Where do I begin? My father was a relentlessly self-improving boulangerie owner from Belgium with low-grade narcolepsy and a penchant for buggery. My mother was a 15-year-old French prostitute named Chloe with webbed feet. My father would womanize, he would drink, he would make outrageous claims like he invented the question mark. Sometimes he would accuse chestnuts of being lazy, the sort of general malaise that only the genius possess and the insane lament. My childhood was typical. Summers in Rangoon, luge lessons. In the spring, we'd make meat helmets. When I was insolent, I was placed in a burlap bag and beaten with reeds. Pretty standard, really. At the age of 12, I received my first scribe. The age of 14, as a roastery named Vilma, ritualistically shaved my testicles. There really is nothing like a shorn scrotum. It's breathtaking. I suggest you try it. You know, we have to stop. Everything in that is so surreal. So surreal. It just builds and builds and you have to listen so carefully. And yet it is so purely dumb. So wonderfully stupid. And to me, I think that's where Mike Myers is at his funniest. And I think a lot of this movie is coming more from that point of view that you described where he's a little bit nervous to do the weirder things. And this movie is about pleasing the general audience. So you get this tone that I think is more top secret and more airplane, which is like big, broad comedy, like holding up melons in front of breasts. And I like it. It just feels like this movie has a little undercurrent of something a little bit more subversive and a lot more funny. Like there's even that deleted scene where uh, the guy who gets run over by the steamroller, they cut to his family being at home and his wife gets the call that he's been killed. And you have this moment where you just exist in that. And I was like, oh, that's the stuff that I really respond to. What I find fascinating about this movie's effect on me is that it's just the sharp pivot it takes from setting up one tone and then testing the audience. Because I always love it when a film tests an audience and says, here's our tone are you down? You have to be down because we are going to make this joke be so intense. I mean, yes, we open with this like serious spy music credits. Oh, here we go. This is real. And then I swear to God, I timed it. It's like 10 minutes later. Mike Myers' Austin Powers is unfrozen and he is just peeing for a solid minute straight. A solid minute. Like, I'm going to play a clip and I want you to know that this clip happens 30 seconds into already hearing Michael Myers pee for this long and then continuing to pee. And it's that sort of endurance test for the audience where the film is saying, like, here we are. This is one of our types of humor that you will be seeing in this film. And it breaks you. Like, it absolutely breaks you. You know, it, I, I am broken. I'm okay. Picture hearing 30 seconds of being and then picture going into this. Evacuation come. 
Evacuation complete. 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 Evacuation complete. Like, I should not find that funny. Do you know what I mean? I right. feel almost embarrassed that I even pulled that clip because I would like to say, no, 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 no. I like the dry, subversive wit. But this movie breaks me because it is just so bulldozer-ish. It steamrollers me. I am steamrollered. I am getting the grief call. But that is the Zucker Brothers, like, type of comedy. That's Naked Gun. That is Scary Movie. You know, it has that ability to make you laugh at the dumbest things because they really just commit to it. And I think the movie does commit hard. Like, they're not trying to pull back in any way. And I think it is actually very effective and really funny and really well-directed. And maybe that's Jay Roach. Like, I love that scene with the penis pump. One Swedish-made penis enlarger pump. That's not mine. One credit card receipt for Swedish-made penis enlarger signed by Austin Powers. I'm telling you, baby, that's not mine. One warranty card for Swedish-made penis enlarger pump filled out by Austin Powers. I don't even know what this is. This sort of thing ain't my bag, baby. One book, (laughs) Swedish-made penis enlarger pumps and me. This sort of thing is my bag, baby, by Austin Powers. Ah, just sign the form. Okay, don't get heavy, man. I'll sign him just to get things moving, you know. Now, that is like a one-off joke, but then the fact that it comes in at the end to defeat the lone villain that he has not defeated, I was like, oh, that's perfect. It's so, it, it, like, that's where the structure all comes together. But the movie is really dumb, but really put together and committed to its tone, yeah, which, it, you know, I think is admirable. It builds. I think that's what I respect about it. Because I think there are lesser movies where maybe he just pees for 30 seconds or they're like, oh, it's your penis pump. But this one just commits. And well, it you commits remember. And it, it breaks you down until you start laughing. Well, you remember Naked Gun, the first movie, Leslie Nielsen leaves the stage at a like a prestigious dinner, but he's still miked and he goes to use the oh, bathroom yeah, and, right. so, and he pees for like 30 seconds. Like we've seen these jokes. But that's I think, a mere 30 seconds. Does he keep peeing? <laughs> he does pee for a very long time in that scene. Uh, <laughs> Do I we need put to them, pull this? Do we need to have a pee comparison? We may have you... to have a pee off. I feel like this movie is truly an homage and uh, an homage to comedic devices beyond the fact that it kind of rips off the premise of Adam Adamant uh, or, you know, I mean, Captain America. But there is something about this movie that it feels like he's hitting the beats that his dad loved in these comedies and he's doing them his way. I don't think anything feels like he's stealing it, but it's like, oh, that made my dad laugh. That that makes me laugh. And I feel like there's a real clarity. I've never really seen anyone parody comedy before. And I think he is doing it here. Yeah. I mean, well, here's just him talking about where he came up with the idea, like the roots of it. Uh, what happened was, uh, you know, I got the idea for this character, yeah. you know, because uh, I had heard the song The Look of Love by Burt Bacharach, oh, sure. you know, which was, uh, you know, a song dedicated to Ursula Andress. <laughs> 
And uh, I thought of this whole thing, so I started talking to my wife. You yeah. know, for three days, I was right. a sexy swinger. Come on, baby, let's go in the back and shag. Yeah, man. And for the first three, da three days shag. of it, she was, yeah. She was laughing, and then she went, okay, shut up. <laughs> and so I wrote it down, and I wrote the script. And I mean, that song that he's talking about, the Burt Bacharach song, Burt Bacharach has a cameo in this, and the song has a cameo in this. Here's what that song sounds like. It's marvelous. You've got the the idea though that like that's a part of this origin is that Mike Myers's wife just knows him well enough to be like you've come up with a character you're annoying me with this character you need to take this energy that you have and actually channel it I like picturing her at this moment being like my husband is going through a creative slump he's not acting anymore he's annoying the hell out of me by asking if I if I feel horny all the time go 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 do something I mean do you ever as a creative person in a creative marriage, do you guys ever be like, no, write that down, stop annoying me? No, I think there are certain things that you can say to your partner where you're like, oh, I like that, like, you should do more of that, or that's not working, for sure. I also think, you know, we talk a lot in the show about the person behind the person. You know, whether that's Polly Platt in Last Picture Show, or I think here, Mike Myers' wife is truly behind some of the best Mike Myers projects. And you could make an argument that once they get divorced, he really loses his creative way. Like, I think that she was able to rein him in or help him figure out where the voice needed to go and where it should stop. And she was incredibly strong. I, I haven't seen a great Mike Myers film or project where it's him front and center since the divorce. Yeah, he's almost Mike loving it out, you know, like disappearing as an artist here and there for long periods. It's the love guru. My God, that was one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. And he keeps saying, he's been saying for years, he's going to make Austin Powers 4. I mean, like clockwork. Every every 18 months, there's like a little round of like, yes, it's coming. Yes, it's coming. I think whenever you make anything so successful, it's just easier to answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're working on it. We're working on yeah. it. There was an Austin Powers the cartoon. Idea. Yeah, I mean, and look, there are a wealth of weird Mike Myers projects that have never seen the light of day. I was so interested in seeing the Dieter movie. Dieter is a character he played on SNL. Oh yeah, uh, Sprockets. You know, from Sprockets. And I remember reading different plot synopses of that, and it was really, really funny. Um, but I do think that this character is just exceptionally fun because it does bridge the gap. It's a kid's movie. It's an adult film. And I think it's, I hate to say the term, but like a four quadrant movie where old and young can come see it. Like you don't see big comedy movies like this anymore. It really is fun. And, and in many ways, just a joy to watch. Like I was thinking about that last night. I was like, oh, I could watch this and Naked Gun with my kids. And they would laugh just as hard as I'm laughing at things that they don't get. You're right. You're right. Because we're laughing at the penis enlarger joke. But then he also has this one. Oh. Always wanting to have fun, Austin. That's you in a nutshell. No, this is me in a nutshell. Help! I'm in a nutshell. How did I get into this nutshell? Look at the size of this bloody great big nutshell. What sort of shell has a nut like this? I mean, this is crazy. I mean, to me, that is one of my favorite examples of just like, 
the small, strange, and sublime humor that Mike Myers can just really do when he, when he nails it. Mike Myers has also said numerous times that this movie is like 40% improvised, which is, I think, a testament to the amazing actors that he surrounded himself with. Mindy Sterling is just great in this movie. Uh, she played Frau Farbissina. Uh, she's in all the films. Uh, she improvised that Lucky Charms line, you know, where the Irish henchman is uh, always mad because people are after his, his Lucky Charms. Uh, you have Will Ferrell, who makes his film debut in this film. Now, I do think there were goals or people he wanted to get for this movie he didn't get. Like, Jim Carrey was supposed to be Dr. Evil. And that, to me, is really interesting because... Jim Carrey is essentially doing that in Sonic. Um, oh, and you know how much I love Jim Carrey in the Sonic movies. I do too. I think he's great in it. Uh, I think he would have been great in this movie as well. But without Jim Carrey playing Dr. Evil, we basically get to see Lauren Michaels. I mean, for a long time, it's been rumored that that is Lauren Michaels. It has now essentially been confirmed that is Lauren Michaels. And I will tell you that having met Lauren Michaels, when I met him the first time, I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, like I get it. Like it it is shocking how much that's Lauren Michaels and you don't really get it until I got it, but seeing him talking to him I was like it's undeniable it's it's so undeniable and I think that that gives this movie this energy like it the reason why he can improvise so well, the reason why he knows that character so well is because it is part of him. It is however there is some drama behind this because yes. it is Mike Myers doing an impersonation of Dana Carvey doing an impersonation of Lauren Michaels. Then that this kind of almost theft of of Dana Carvey's impersonation, I think, caused a huge rift between Wayne and Garth. Huge, huge rift between Wayne and Garth. I mean, there's this fascinating interview with Howard Stern and Dana Carvey where Howard Stern is really pushing him on this, trying to be like, you are mad that Mike Myers stole your impersonation of Lorne Michaels. When he was doing the whole movie, um, well, Austin Powers. Austin Powers, yes. The Dr. Evil. Dr. Evil, Is yes. an impression of Lorne Michaels. Right. And I had, uh, I had heard, maybe you don't want to get into this, but, oh, no, it's fine. but, but yeah. that Mike's impression of Lorne was based on your impression of Lorne, and he took it and, and used it as Dr. Evil. And it bugged you a little bit, right? Because you were the one who figured out how to do Lorne. Um, when I started there, no one did Lorne. The first thing I broke was him in the meeting in the room. Uh, this is on a Wednesday night. You've read all the sketches. And he's trying to move these cards around to figure out what the show's going to be. And he has it in acts, like a Broadway show. That's Lorne's big thing. Yeah, the yeah. first act. And he doesn't have any cards there. And he would say, he would say before you use the bathroom behind him, you go, um, I still have no fucking first act. And that was what broke it for me. Ah. I still have no fucking first act. In other words, when like, you say broke it for you, you heard yeah. him say that and you heard the music of his voice. Yeah. And yeah. then after that, it was just going this thing of like, you never underestimate the value of water. <laughs> the pinky thing was a made up thing. Lauren doesn't do that. But somehow it fit. You know, you came up with the pinky thing. Well, the pinky put... thing I did do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We sure. never really talked about it. I, I talked about it to the therapist and I've, I basically let it go. 
Right. So you you, know? did you pick up the phone and call him and say, hey, you know, I know I've been harboring a resentment and I am now uh, kind of over it. I just want you to know that. Do you, I haven't do you done that. No. I haven't done that. I'd no. like to do it on, you know, national radio. Would you do that now? <laughs> address, would you try, address Mike Myers? Uh, I mean... The detail that I love in there is Dana Carvey being like, yeah, I invented the pinky finger to the lip thing. Lauren doesn't even do that, but Lauren would do that. There's something in Lauren that does have his pinky to the mouth. Look, I think that there is a tension between the two of them. I think that clearly he didn't want to share the spotlight at a certain point. Like he could have easily cast, you know, uh, Dana Carvey in that role. You know, Jim Carrey already said no. Uh, Or he was pressed and he said, oh, I'll do it. And then he takes it. I think Robin Williams had been blamed for that a lot, like stealing little things. And, you know, Alec Baldwin's Trump impression, people have issue with little things that they've taken from it. But the weird thing about an impression is an impression of someone's impression still is of the person. It's like, oh, you found these little details in it. Like, for example, you know, uh, Mark McKinney, in uh, Brain Candy, this Kids in the Hall movie, like he's doing Lorne Michaels. And there is a similarity to Mark McKinney's Lorne Michaels to Dr. Evil. You know, there are these general similarities. I think that when you see anyone do George W. Bush, you'll see part of Will Ferrell's George W. Bush in there. Like there is a part of him because oh, the, yeah. or the, the first impression. Pre- or the first yeah. President Bush. I don't yeah. see first President Bush without seeing Dana Carvey doing the first President Bush. Yeah. And Dana Carvey is an amazing impressionist. And I think that that sucks. And I totally understand how you don't want to say that, but you also stole those little details, those little fun things, you know, that made his impression better. But I could see Mike Myers going, well, he's never going to do that. So why don't I do that? But it, again seems like Mike Myers is embracing the homage of comedy. I don't want to keep on bringing up Adam, Adam, it lives, but yeah, you're, when you, you look at it, it's, that I've never seen. So it's just, yeah. it, it just is like this. I mean, it, it truly is the same thing. The only difference is that it's about a guy from 1902 who comes into the swinging sixties. a knight in white armor cold Adam Adamant 26A Albany Street but that part of Albany Street isn't even there anymore must be a hoax of some kind well in theory you know it, it could just happen some elementary forms of life do go into a, a sort of indefinitely extended hibernation. This isn't an elementary form of life. This is supposed to be the Adam Adamant. Ah, but there was never any conclusive proof of his death, you know. He just disappeared under mysterious circumstances. A lot of people refused to believe that he was dead. Oh, he was much too popular a hero for them to let go of him, I suppose. Well, if Adamant were alive, he'd be, let me see, he'd be 99, but it's absurd. He's coming round. So he just said, oh, what if the swinging 60s guy comes into the 90s? You know, he just changed the deck, you know, but the same idea of being out of, out of place, solving crimes, getting back into adventuring, uh, you know, and it was created uh, by Richard Harris, who, you know, was known for, uh, you know, being a writer for the Avengers, not the uh, Marvel one, of course, but the original Avengers, which has a little bit of that 
same oh, yeah. style and tone, you know? And Right. Uh, I mean, it's just this like linking chain of association that Miss Kensington is like Emma Peel in the Avengers. The original Avengers also is where we got Honor Blackman from, who wound up in Goldfinger. It's just a whole cyclical thing. And I kept thinking watching this one, like, I wonder if the reason why all of Dr. Evil's room is silver is just because silver is their version of Goldfinger. He's like, well, he's going to be Dr. Evil Silverfinger because everything is silver. And I have to well, say, I just bought a pair of silver go-go boots and I feel like it was perfect timing. Having Oh, you this. and Ron DeSantis can go out and party. He uh, has silver go-go boots? He had white go-go boots. But I was he thinking does? that you- How dare he? I want white go-go boots, but now I can't get them if he has them. You got to see pictures of him after the flood. Uh, But I think what I'm wrestling with in this film is simply that it's not as much of a James Bond parody film as I originally remember. Like, there are the certain jokes. Odd job, random task. By the way, do you know that story about the actor who played random task? No. Get ready, because it's going to bum you out. And I'm so sorry to do this so early in the episode, but Joe Sun, the actor who played Random Task, who is, you know, standing in for the odd job, he attacks Austin Powers with a shoe at the end, um, is serving a life-term prison sentence for the torture of a 19-year-old woman. Uh, He went uncaptured until 2008 when a DNA match linked him to the crime. Uh, And she, his victim, unknowingly had a copy of this movie in her home uh, until the attacker's identity was revealed. In 2017, he was sentenced to an additional 27 years for murdering his cellmate. Oh, my God. So, yeah. Rough stuff. That's uh, so dark. Really, really, really dark. Uh, but <laughs> not to take us down that that path, but there are those. You took us down that path. We, I we did. Got, we done got took, man. But I do think that this is more of a, a parody of like kind of the bad Bond stuff, like the cat, the layers, like the the whoa, diamonds whoa, 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 are for cats are bad. Excuse no, me. No, but like the you know the the stroking of the cat from Blofeld, like the the bigger Bond right. things. Like he's not no. like a James Bond. He's not a he's not even really like James Bond. He's got like a gadget person, but he's not. Acting like James Bond. Well, yeah, in the gadget scene, she's just trying to get him to learn how to floss and brush his teeth. I have this great gadget. It's called mouthwash. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they're they're making fun of a lot of stuff that we were making fun of in the gold in the gold member. Or making fun of is a harsh word. Embracing the daffiness of it in in gold member. Wait, now I'm calling it gold member. What did this movie? Gold finger. Sorry, I know, but uh, well, so it goes. Um, but yeah, like remember how when we were talking about Goldfinger, like why does he just start killing everybody who are all of his like right. co-evil henchmen? I mean, that just happens right in the intro of this. He's just sitting around a desk and setting people on fire left and right. Or the bit where it's like, yeah, I'm going to strap you to this table, got a laser to your crotch. And, and Seth Green, who I just love for playing Scott Evil so straight, is like, shoot them. Just shoot them. Scott, I want you to meet daddy's nemesis, Austin Power. What are you feeding him? Why don't you just kill him? No, Scott, I have an even better idea. I'm going to place him in an easily escapable situation involving an overly elaborate and exotic death. Why don't you just shoot him now? I mean, I'll go get a gun. We'll shoot him together. It'll be fun. Bang! Dead. Done. One more peep out of you, and you are grounded, mister, and I am not joking. He's amazing in this, and I can't believe that Colin Quinn turned down that role. It would have been totally Oof. different. Uh, he regrets turning down that role. But what a funny idea to have a much older son. Like, 
like Colin Quinn at that point was, you know, mid thirties. Uh, to have that energy would be really great. But Seth Green kills it here. He's so funny in it. And I want to just talk about the set design, too, because one of the things about this movie that I think makes it so fun is how beautiful the sets look. They really embrace the 60s aesthetic for the lair and the costume design. Everything about it has that kind of look. And I think that that's probably Jay Roach, to a certain extent, really making sure the film pops. It doesn't feel a little bit flat because I think you could make the argument that a movie like Naked Gun, and not to compare these two back to back, but I think you can, doesn't really look great. I don't think Zucker Brother movies look great. They're funny, but they're pretty flat. And this, the from the airplane set to the lair, um, even to like all the little scenes that we see in the 60s, everything is just very stylized, you know, the way that they experience Las Vegas, you know, it's, you know, an homage to the sixties, even though they're in the nineties. Um, there is just a really good idea of how to keep this movie visually as interesting as the comedy as well. It feels very unique. And I think that all these things come together to kind of make this movie work better than it probably should have. And that's why I think it's a hit on home video. Cause you're like, Oh, Mike Myers, I'm over it. Maybe it won't be good. It's the MacGruber syndrome. It's like, I don't know if I'm in the mood for this. And then all of a sudden you see it and you're like, Oh, this is just packed full of jokes. And it looks really great too. Well, yeah, exactly. And I think that there's an intelligence to the costume design that I really appreciate. Like even just the plane scene, for example, you know, they're on his like his personal jumbo jet. It's all like 60s out. It's so colorful, so fabulous. And the misfit person is Vanessa and Vanessa is dressed in plain white. You know, they keep her in these like really stark colors to kind of make her pop or stand out from all of the wild colors. She's the person who's not participating in this like lunatic over paisleyed version of the 60s which to me just seems like exactly how I want to dress right now. And I am also equally horrified to remember as I am talking that we are now as far away from the 90s as the 60s were from the 90s when this came out. And that is horrendous. Um, my God, yeah, like Wayne's World came out 30 years ago. Let's not think about this. Um, but yeah, I mean, still on this idea of like parodying the 60s, parodying this idea of James Bond, there are moments in this that I can't tell if they're, a deliberate parody or just Mike Myers humor, you know, the way that like James Bond gets most women, most women are like, Oh, I love you. Oh, you're the best. Oh my God. Mike Myers. Uh, oh, sorry. Oh, James Bond. Oh, James Bond. There's that scene with Austin Powers where he's in the hot tub with a lot of vagina and he just is weird. Okay. First, let me just say, I can never tell a scene to scene if we're supposed to find Austin Powers hot or repulsive, right? Cause the movie yeah. shoots him as kind of ghastly, but all the characters around him are like, you're so hot. And so I'm always toggling back and forth between like his teeth. Oh my God. Which by the way, the person who designed his teeth actually went to like British pubs here in, in LA in the Valley and just took pictures of people's teeth to make these teeth. He's this dental tech. He also wound up doing like interview the vampire, Mrs. Doubtfire, Nixon. He did the grill that, um, that, uh, that, uh, that, uh, James Franco wears in spring breakers. Oh, wow. But anyway, so like, you know, yeah, it's like, oh, I can't resist Austin Powers. Oh, blah, 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 blah. Like, 
You have Mrs. Kensington, who, by the way, strange side note, is played by Mimi Rogers, you know, Tom Cruise's first wife, the, mm-hmm. the, the woman who brought Tom Cruise into Scientology. She is Mrs. Kensington. And when she's talking about him, it almost sounds like she's describing somebody else like, oh, he's so charming. And oh, everybody loved him. He's so seductive and suave. And you're like, that that guy? Like, really? Well, but- I think it, it goes to your point from last week, which is like, are we supposed to think he's a creep? Or a good guy, because when we talked about Sean Connery, like he was doing some things that were creepy that worked. You know, women are like, oh my gosh, he did slap me on the bottom. He did just break into my hotel room and they seem unfazed. He seems to be doing it and not like not being smooth at all about it. Like, but it is like, I think that idea, like exploring that idea, like he's so bold, but he's also like dad joke. And he's dad joke in the 60s and he's dad joke in the 90s. You know, it's, a, it's like well, nothing yeah. changed. Yeah. I mean, like part of what Mike Meyer said he thought was great in this character was that it would give him an ex- chance to like explore the idea of sex as being really corny. And he talks specifically about this, about like how he got his chest hair idea even from Sean Connery. There's something about sexuality that is corny. People get very, very serious about their sexiness. And to me, it always makes me laugh because it's, it's almost too arch, you know what I mean? So overt sexuality makes me laugh. And especially like really contrived dirty jokes make me laugh. When I was a kid, marveling at Sean Connery being part man, part beast, a crazy amount of chest hair. He had uh, he, a pelt, if you will, more than chest hair. But yeah, the, okay. But the scene that I can't decide if it's like, if it's supposed to be James Bond or Mike Myers, is that hot tub scene with a lot of vagina where they're like flirting with each other and then he just lets loose a lot of gas in the hot tub and she finds it charming. And I can't tell exactly what the joke is in this. Like, or I'm curious. I feel like it could be nine things. I could I think it could be like Austin Powers is so sexy that even his farts are charming. Or it could be Austin Powers is so confident of his effect on women that this woman's scamming him and pretending that his farts are charming. I go back and forth. Let's listen to it and you tell me what you think. How do you feel, Mr. Cunningham? Mm, I feel extreme relaxation. How dare you break wind before me? I'm sorry, baby. I didn't know it was your turn. <laughs> Pardon me for being rude. It was not me. It was my food. It just popped up to say hello, and now it's gone back down below. That's beautiful. Mm. Thank you. <laughs> Let's make love, you silly, hairy little man. <laughs> I say, hello, Vicar. <laughs> Does she like his farts or is she or is she fucking with him? I think they're, well, look, I think that she is trying to play him, but then she falls for him. One of the biggest jokes and things I like about this movie is that he does have sex with her and then basically tells Elizabeth Hurley, like, oh yeah, of course I had sex with her. Like, I don't know. I think it's a heightening of no matter what he does, they are impressed by. And that's very much a Sean Connery thing. Like, oh, he just did something so, you know, uh, not violent, but just so insulting. But they're like, oh. So, so I do you believe think she likes his, his flatulence and thinks it's I charming? think it's a heightening. I don't think you can really drill down on the reality of a lot of these scenes. I mean, we also are talking about a movie that has a pee scene, 
uh, a poop scene and a fart scene. I think that at the end of the day, we're just... <laughs> We're just like, farts are funny. I think, honestly, it's like, can we fart in a hot tub? Like, that. that's all we're doing is farting in a hot tub. Like, I don't think you can read that much more into it than there are these, and I talked to Anna Ferris about this when I was on her podcast, like this role of the bounce card. Like, a lot of attractive women are off, often put into this role of the bounce card, which is like, you just laugh at the idea that the man just throws at you. You're, sl- you know, and I feel like that's what he's parodying, and it just happens to be like something that no one would ever laugh at, but I do think... It's commenting on that. It's also a fart it's, joke. Yes. But it also is not grounded in anything. But it is commenting on that. And it's 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 yes. what that comment is saying that I'm toying with still in in my head. Or or there's the one where like, you know, they're getting attacked by the by the fish. And yeah. you know, that one guy loses his head to the fish and he just tries to tell like a million James Bond quippyish one-liners. And I feel like you hear Elizabeth Hurley just get less and less amused. Not a good time to lose one's head. Oh, indeed. That's not the way to get ahead in life. No. It's a shame he wasn't more headstrong. Mm. He'll never be the head of a major corporation. Okay, that'll do. Okay. We have to say how wonderful Elizabeth Hurley is in this movie. Honestly, because she's got a difficult thing. She's playing kind of the straight person. She's supposed to be you know, coded as like representative ambassador of the 90s. And the 90s in this movie are a little uncool. They're like considered to be kind of uptight, not nearly as fun as the 60s, which is also ironic because then I watched this movie and I'm like, man, the 90s were so much fun, more fun than the 2020s. I almost looked at it and said nothing has changed. I mean, the fact that like corporations are everything now. I mean, the the big joke is that Robert Wagner has made Dr. Evil's company a profitable company. Like, why do you even need to do evil? Because corporations are the ultimate evil. And that's like, they are right there in front of it all. Like, you know, I feel like nothing has changed. We've been saying the same things for decades. No, I feel like that's true. But I think the, I think that we don't laugh at a lot. I mean, there's a lot of dated humor, right? Sure. There's some definite dated 90s humor from like the position of like, we are the liberated decade. And now we're like, okay, all right. We've like, we keep, I suppose, re-liberating. But I do feel like this movie is like an argument for also having joy. And I miss the joy. Like I miss, there's a little throwaway line that I don't, I did not get the first time I saw this movie that happens to be a reference to what is one of my absolute favorite movies of all time that I've then, then watched later. There's the tiniest little bit of a reference when he like goes to his like, what is it called? The Austin Powers Pussycat Psychedelic Swing Club? Or I love that, yeah. Yeah, he makes a reference to Movie written by Roger Ebert, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Austin, it's a swinging shindig. It's my happening, baby, and it freaks me out. Yeah, man! Paul, have you seen Beyond the Valley of the Dolls? I have not. I've heard a lot about (gasps) it, and I know I should definitely watch it. Uh, but yes, I, I understand it. I understand it enough to get the reference. Do you think we could ever do that movie on this show? Oh, I think we could do whatever we want to do. Really? Oh, of course. You think we're liberated '90s people? We can do it. It's just we a matter of show? will anyone tune in? I mean, but maybe it will be a good group experience. Maybe we should do that as a live show. Go rent out a theater, watch it together, and have a discussion afterwards. I would love to do that. Oh, I mean, it's one of my favorite movies of all time, and that it's written by Roger Ebert. By the way, Roger Ebert loves this movie, and he says something that I think is really interesting about it, which is 
he feels like it doesn't have a smug cynicism like Naked Gun, which in watching Naked Gun, I don't understand where he sees smug cynicism, but maybe because the character is more joyful and like smiling a lot. And where in Naked Gun, I feel like it's a different type of a character. It's a beaten down cop or a cop who, you know, more noir and this is much more like swinging sixties. I don't know, but I don't think of it as cynicism. I don't think of, I don't think of those movies at all uh, as being cynical. But I do think it was interesting that Roger Ebert did see those as cynical, and this as pure joy. I wonder if Roger Ebert is just cluing into his own memories of the sixties, which I feel like Roger Ebert very much enjoyed. Don't you think Roger? Ebert, oh, I mean, if you, absolutely. When you watch Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, you'll be like, oh yeah, Roger Ebert went to some parties. Roger Ebert knew. Roger Ebert was hip. I would love to have partied with 1960s Roger Ebert. I think that would have been a, a blast. Uh, I feel like he would have like a Quentin Tarantino energy in a good way, but like I think he'd be holding court. I feel like him him holding court is definitely uh, something that I could see Ebert doing. Yeah, did you ever see that documentary about him? Uh, Life itself. Yes. Oh yeah. They talk about how he just like went to the bar across from the newspaper every day, just like hung out at the bar talking about movies and sports really loudly to people. Like that stuff makes me really wish I was writing for newspapers in the olden days. Oh yeah. I mean, it's like, he's out with the people, you know, just to kind of embrace the sixties a little bit too. What's interesting about this film is yes, it takes place in the nineties, but it definitely does so many callbacks to the sixties that it's hard to kind of figure out where we are at because when they're in Vegas, they're doing a sixties kind of montage where you would see it. But when they have the end scene. The lair is very 60s. The fembots are very 60s. So this movie does live in the 90s, really through the eyes of uh, Hurley, Elizabeth Hurley, who is fantastic in this movie. And what a shame she was kicked out and made a fembot in the second film, but we don't have to talk about that. But she's Oh, no, we should talk about that because that's so funny. It's such a great, (laughs) like, funny turn, but it also is like, it's such a... Yeah, it's a bummer because you shoot yourself in the foot by losing someone who I think plays a straight man to him so well. And no matter how good Heather Graham is in that role, it's not as good as Elizabeth Hurley. Well, yeah, I think Elizabeth Hurley has a has a real kind of freshly face washed gravitas that that works so well. But I mean, I did pull a clip from that Vanessa Femba opening. And what 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 I love about it is that it kind of hurts. That you actually yes. really like their relationship towards the end of this movie. You're, you're kind of invested in them. That, you know, he's repulsive. You're very much on her side when she's like, I would never, ever, ever have sex with you. You're horrible. But his the way he wins her over with humor, I, I kind of buy it. I kind of buy it, even with those teeth. And so when she reveals herself as a fembot at the beginning of the second one and tries to kill him and then she has to die, it guts me. I can't believe Vanessa... My bride, my one true love, the woman who taught me the beauty of monogamy, was a fembot all along. Wait a tick. That means I'm single again. Oh, behave! (laughs) Yeah! He's single again. Oh, and by the way, did you know what inspired the fembots? Because it's a movie that we covered uh, earlier this year. What? 
the fembots were inspired by that scene in um, Monty Python and the Holy Grail where Galahad goes to the castle and there's all those like sexy, sexy women who are trying to get him to stay there. Yeah, yeah, here's a clip of that. You have suffered much. You are delirious. Look, I have seen it. It is here. Sir Galahad, you would not be so ungallant as to refuse our hospitality. Well, I, I, uh... Oh, I'm afraid our life must seem very dull and quiet compared to yours. We are but eight score young blondes and brunettes, all between 16 and 19 and a half, cut off in this castle with no one to protect us. Oh, it is a lonely life. Bathing, dressing, undressing, making exciting underwear. Yeah, they were like, let's take that idea of all these women who are here as a trap trying to like capture our man and and then like hold them quiet. By the way, Amy, I don't want to correct you, but you know, uh, fembots are often referred to as gynoids as well. What, really? Yeah, that's, that's a gross. disgusting I don't like term. It. But um, again, taking from comedy, uh, which is interesting, parodying comedy. But I do think the reason why this movie does work in an interesting way is, unlike Captain America, where he's forced to be in the decade that he lives in, this movie really blurs that line. He very rarely is in the 90s. Like, people are speaking to him in that way, but Elizabeth Hurley is truly the only person because when they travel on the plane, that's 60s. You know, when they're the there's very few moments where he comes up to the reality of the 90s besides a, a personal interaction. And yeah, I think he that tries that, to like watch about the fall of the Berlin Wall, he learns a few things. Yeah, but that's like kind of just a little montagey moment. It's like it's not like Beavis and Butthead, the new Beavis and Butthead, which is on Paramount Plus, it's so fucking funny. The same idea. Beavis and Butthead, uh, just consider it like the Marvel Snap. They pop back up in our time and they interact with people now, but they have not grown, changed, or anything. And it's so great. It's so fucking funny. But this movie, I think, loses out on those jokes by just basically, he just made a movie that takes place in the 60s with a couple of tweaks. Like, well, there's that showdown, though, between him and Dr. Evil at the end where where Dr. Evil's like, hey, everything you loved about your life, the free love, the free vibe, that is now in the 90s considered evil. We're not so different, you and I. However, isn't it ironic that the very things that you stand for, free love, swinging, parties, are all now in the 90s, considered to be evil? No, man, what we swingers were rebelling against is uptight squares like you, whose bag was money and world domination. We were innocent, man. If we'd known the consequences of our sexual liberation, we would have done things differently, but the spirit would have remained the same. It's freedom, baby, yeah. Face it. Freedom failed. No, man, freedom didn't fail. Right now we've got freedom and responsibility. It's a very groovy time. (laughs) There's nothing more pathetic than an aging hipster. And I will say, I don't know if I buy Austin Powers being like, no, 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 freedom and responsibility. That seems very idealistic. Yeah, no, there's something about him that I feel like him changing his teeth at the end of the film, and I know that's a running joke that he has bad teeth. But him changing his teeth is him, like, selling himself out in a weird way. Like, Austin Powers, I don't think, 
would change himself, but yet he does. And I think that that's an, I mean, look, I don't want to read too much into Austin Powers, but. No, but that's what we are here to do, Paul. <laughs> I, I just think that he does sell himself out. He changes for the time and it makes me feel like it makes him a nice guy, but there is something very funny to somebody who can't fit in in this world. And he very, like, doesn't seem to have that much of a hard time, uh, you know, just adapting immediately. Uh, whereas I think a yeah. funny version of this movie is taking Sean Connery from the 60s and putting him in the now. And just having that brute energy is really funny to me. I mean, that's, you know, look, I've done stuff like this. Uh, and I look at all parody, especially stuff with like cops and stuff. I did um, I did this show called NTSF SDSUV. And we did a, a bit on our show where Robert Forrester, uh, great actor of Jackie Brown, obviously, uh, is a... Uh, a cop from the 60s, a hard-edged cop who is after Abby Hoffman. They both were frozen and then they thaw out and chase each other. And, um, you know, we're probably ripping off of Austin Powers as well. But uh, I think there is something that this movie is missing. When I look at it, go like, oh, you've missed a lot. of. There's a lot of jokes on the table that you are not necessarily embracing. And all we're really doing is experiencing those jokes through side characters like Seth Green's character, like Robert Wagner's character, where they just are commenting on the outside world, but yet the characters are still pretty insulated in their 60s world. Yeah, and then by like Goldmember, he's just completely gone Hollywood. Yeah. I mean, like that that movie ends with like them making a movie of his life directed by Steven Spielberg. And of course, with... uh, Gwyneth Paltrow and Tom Cruise. I actually pulled a clip clip of Paltrow talking a lot because I think she's very funny. Hi, I'm Dixie. Dixie Normus. I may just be a small town FBI agent slash single mother, but I'm still tough and sexy. Well, Miss Normus, shall we shag now or shag later? Oh, Austin, behave. By the way, do you remember who plays Dr. Evil in this movie within a movie version? I'm going to say it's... No, Danny DeVito plays Mini-Me, right? Uh-huh. Um, and Dr. Evil would be... Oh, tell uh-huh. me. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm close. I'm close. John Travolta? <gasps> Worse. What? Kevin oh. Spacey. Oh, right. <laughs> of course. There we go. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Uh-huh. Of course he does. Uh, that's of a great... Of course yeah. he does. I mean, one of the things Mike Myers has said is if he does do a fourth Austin Powers, it will be from the Dr. Evil point of view. And I think that's actually smart because you're right. Like if, if Dr. Evil is the head of a corporation and if corporations are the true evil power, I feel like he adapts to 2022 better than Austin Powers. So I think there's more to say with that character well, I also in just, 2022. I also want to look at it and say, is this a movie that you could only do in the 90s? Because it's parodying something that exists to a certain culture. Like, I don't think that people have the connection to James Bond anymore. I don't know if this movie works or connects that same way. Like, what is the updated thing? You're saying that now, the 90s, I mean, we'd almost be better served with, like, what is that 90s cop that is put into 2020? Like, what is that version? You know, it, there, it may be a funnier version there because I think it's a little bit more relevant. You know, it's, we're getting further and further away from the source material. Um not that yeah, you need who it, would but be it's that like nineties character. You know, like a like great. Who's a character who is so nineties that uh, you could just 
like put them in a time machine and put them, I don't know, not Ethan Hawke in reality bites. I'm like, who's the most 90s character? I mean, you know, you, we've talked about a lot of these movies on the show. I don't know if they make the perfect sense, but you would have like a Bruce Willis, John McClane, or, a, you know, again, like De Niro from Heat or Wesley Snipes from New Jack City. But even like a movie like Bad Boy or Steven Seagal, like what about Steven Seagal? You take him and you put him, you know, he's probably the best version of that because all these other actors are still working. Like Will Smith, uh, you know, obviously take away the the slap, just made Bad Boys 4, you know, and they kind of deal with like, oh, being updated in this world. And, you know, Bruce Willis was making diehards into the, you know, 2000s. But Steven Seagal is one that might be interesting to play with. But the other right. great cop movies, yeah, are not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I think what I'm wrestling with, though, is it doesn't feel like our culture has shifted that much from the 90s. It feels like, you know, we're still living in a Hollywood that is very similar to John McClane trying to be John McClane, trying to be bad boys. We're still mm. trying to make that movie. I you know, like If we wonder. could do a good diehard, we would do a good diehard. They're just, they're just keep being awful, but it doesn't feel like musty. Right. I, I'm trying to think of something that would feel musty. I don't know. I, I really don't know. It's, it's a tricky, it's a tricky question because I think you'd have to be embracing something that feels so of the moment. And we are still living in that world. When you look at the great like 90s cop movies or, you know, these are movies like Point Break, uh, yeah. Fargo, you know, uh, like I said, Die Hard. Like there's these are movies that we still, I think, like. But a character like Steven Seagal is funny in that world, you know, like uh, but not so much like Harrison Ford's Fugitive isn't funny in this world because he's kind of OK. You need almost somebody that that like. I guess the go-to joke is like Stallone or Schwarzenegger. Like, who is that guy? Like, if you had Jason Momoa, by the way, Amy, let's make this movie right now. Jason Momoa is a Schwarzenegger from Predator who then comes into this world now. Like, how does he interact? Or, you know, but they almost were so asexual and didn't have any opinion about politics or the world that they yeah. that they are just, just there to kill machines. They're just called like today's Avengers. They're not any different. They're just still swole and sexless. Like we're, yeah. we've just kept on that path. I, I think I think actually you already name checked it. Now that I'm thinking, I think it could only be Beavis and Butthead. I can't think of anybody better than Beavis and Butthead yeah. to it, be so 90s and bring it to the future. They, maybe they picked the only people that it would be funny if you did it to. Well, now I guess my question to you is talking about the legacy of this movie. Does this movie have legs or is this movie... Um, washed out are we because there's a part of me that remembers a lot more of the shitty version of austin powers than this movie and i remember getting my new line dvd double-sided dvd you had to flip over to watch deleted scenes and i loved it but i think if someone said austin powers i'm like oh boy like and that same way i felt about shrek now again i really like this movie i laughed a lot about you know i laughed a lot during it but is this a movie that ha- that time is left behind? Even though it's still funny, is anyone going back and talking about Austin Powers? Does it have any legs? Well, I think they should. I think they should. And I don't think I would have said that a week ago. Okay. But watching this movie, this is exactly a kind of movie I would love to see in the theaters right now that is big and colorful and funny and four quadrant, you know, puts effort on the screen that looks gorgeous and that just is out to make people laugh in a huge way. I am craving that so much. 
I mean, I feel like I got some of that in the Weird Al movie that came out. The Weird Al movie is just fantastic. Really absolutely funny. Absolutely marvelous. I saw you. You were in the trailer version of that. The original trailer I was. version of that. Not asked to be in the movie. Don't understand why. But <laughs> you know what? This is the life I live. Uh, I was happy to see you there. But that was just a joy bomb. And this, an Austin Powers felt like a joy bomb. And I want joy bombs. Like, Honestly, my God, if I get one more email about a movie I have to see and they say it's a it's a new take on trauma, I'm going to fucking bite off all of my hands and tear out my eyes, probably in the other order so I can get the eyes out first and then I'll bite off my hands. Well, you know, I'm tired of it. I'm tired. I want happiness. Well, I, you know, you're talking about this and I can't help but think about Chippendale Rescue Rangers because oh, Chippendale yeah. Rescue Rangers has a similar vibe to this. Like it is playing with those conventions that, you know, a new generation, the people who grew up with those cartoons and and in kind of invading a space that we haven't really touched before. So I do think that there is something about culturally comedies are speaking to an audience that gets them in the moment. Um, and that's not bad. We can look back on those. Like, I think that my dad probably enjoys Peter Seller movies more than I do, even though I love Pink Panther films, but it's harder and harder to show a Pink Panther film to my kids. Like there, when you watch Pink Panther, great. I love Pink Panther. Um, the space between the jokes are wide you know, and it's like, what, what do, what does the next generation want? And maybe that's what comedies are here to do. Like they're, and this is why we run into this problem often when we're looking at like the best movies ever, which is comedies, it's hard for them to hold up and feel relevant to so many people. Dramas, it's much easier. It's much easier to be like, this is the definitive movie about trauma. You know, whereas anyone can say, well, that's not funny. I don't think that that's funny. Well, then and, the way maybe yeah. where this movie really had legs then is is not that it, you know, personally lived on forever itself, even though like, yes, he did like Heineken commercials, like this character was everywhere. This character, I think, got really overexposed. But what it really did is it kneecapped other genres. I mean, when Daniel Craig came out with Casino Royale, he was really clear. He was like, we had to change the tone of James Bond because of this. His quote is this. We had to destroy the myth because Mike Myers fucked us. I am a huge Mike Myers fan, so do not get me wrong, but he kind of fucked us, made it impossible to do the gags that he sent up. Now now I'm talking that he sent up the world of James Bond so completely, the Sean Connery version, that they had to just like about face 180 to figure out how to make Bond relevant because everything they did just looked like an Austin Powers joke. Well, and that's kind of what I think good parody does. You know, I was a part of this show called Burning Love, which is a parody of The Bachelor. And that came out a number of years ago. But there was something about that show that now when you watch Burning Love, you're like, oh, well, that doesn't seem like a parody anymore because it like the show has started to top themselves. And I think once you parody something like you then set the bar on a different level. So things either parody themselves out like uh, The Bachelor or you have to change direction and recreate something because the idea that you're parroting it, it's like, oh, this is stale now. This is like, we can't make this anymore. And I think that that's the reason why we've gone from Michael Bay, like big Armageddon, Pearl Harbor movies into these Marvel movies. And Marvel movies, I think, are a little bit harder to like figure out how to parody them because they're so diverse and they're so big. It's like, you can do it, but it's more, they're less specific to... Uh, tone, they're, you know, they're yeah. more I mean, characters. Anything, it's harder. Like the Suicide Squad movies feel like parodies of superhero movies while being superhero movies. Yeah. But, but maybe true then in what tone, we, yeah. 
Yeah. Maybe what we do is then the next bond just has to be back to a Connery bond. Like you reclaim it. Maybe enough time has gone by that we can reclaim fun bond and that can set the new trend. Yeah. But this, yeah. This, but I mean, the, the, the new bond is Daniel Craig and I think they're going to reinvent it. And the question will be, what are we engaged by now? And that's always going to be, that's, I think anybody who approaches Bond has to think about it like that because I think that Bond is constantly morphing with the times. It's not the same Bond as Sean Connery. It's 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 ever evolving. I don't think in any world was Daniel Craig going to ever have a lair, you know? I mean, like, you know, or you're a, a bad guy with a lair. I mean, even when they came close to some of this stuff, you know, uh, with their version of Blofeld, it, it felt a little like, okay, like, yeah. You got to find the new way in, the new way to pull the audience in. I think it's I want it's sexy different. Bond again. I want like a sexy Bond. I think you'd have bond. sexy, cool Bond. I think you'd have yeah. sexy, cool Bond. I'm just saying, but what is now sexy, cool? And that's a question that I think will be really interesting to see. Like, I, I, I'm, yeah, I think yeah. there is, it's very, it, you can be sexy and nice to people. Like we uh, haven't seen a ton yeah. of that in Bond. A sexy, seductive, nice to people Bond is really fun. A, a bond to make sex fun again without feeling like demeaning would be marvelous. Sure. Like, you know, a bond who does like But is that is that movie worthy? I oh, mean, yeah. and that's, you know, and that's and that's the question is like what is movie worthy like and I think what we're I think talking it's about super movie worthy. I think people are starved for like fun movies with sex in them again. I well, think we don't I, have any. I think what we're talking about though is like the asexualization of film. Like yeah. in a way like we don't really mix action and sex that much. I don't think The Rock ever kisses anyone besides his yeah. daughter, you know, in a movie. It's like, and- uh, Well, that's why if Bond could do it, it would feel fresh because right. I'm so tired well, of this stage. But that's it, what would, I it think, would break through. And that's why I think Game of Thrones was so successful because it mixed all that stuff together. Like, yeah. and obviously it was based on a book, but it's like, it was sex, it was violence. It was, you know, Lord of the Rings. It, it kind of pushed everything together. And I wonder if- you could take a chance like that in a mainstream movie. I think you could take a chance like that on an HBO show. I think uh, you could. I think the person who does it and does it well is going to set a huge trend. I feel like that door is like wide open. Oh, and honestly, that was kind of why I wanted to play that like fembot sing that fembot assassination of of Vanessa from the beginning of the second one, is because yeah, what happens in is like Vanessa, the love of his life, dies. He waits thirty seconds. And he's like, I'm single again, and like Daniel Craig has been, you know tormented over Eva Green for five films. And so I appreciated that, that it's like, that was so sad. Oh, well. And like moving on. I mean, that felt, that felt refreshing. Not that I want women to be treated like disposable objects at all, but that's just how sick I am of like lingering drama. Well, and I think that there's ways to tell these stories. I think we're seeing those ways that are different. Like if, you know, if you talk to people about what they like about Star Trek, what people really like about Star Trek is like Lower Decks. I know I'm on that show. I'm not plugging it, but I'm like saying the idea that like, oh, we're looking at Star Trek in a different way or Star Trek Prodigy, which is, again, taking a different point of view in the world that we already lived in that's established. And I even think uh, Brave New World, which uh, or Worlds, uh, which I really like a lot, is kind of hearkening back to what made Star Trek fun, but updating it in a way that makes it current. And that's the tricky thing is like, how do you give us the thing that we want, the touchstones that we want without, uh, without making it not fun, too dark. And that's something I think Star Trek is a perfect example of a series that's lasted for just about as long. 
and has consistently tried to redefine itself to success and failure. And I think in many respects, one of the best versions of Star Trek was Deep Space Nine. I'm going to nerd out for a second and just say like Deep Space Nine was so good, but probably about 10 years ahead of its time in in the sense of what it was dealing with and and the serialization and the drama. And I love that show so much, but it took a couple of years to find its footing. And then when it did, you'd be hard pressed to find a better Star Trek show. So, but it was this, I think the reinvention, how do we give people what they want, but also take them with us into the future. Okay. But as we're digging into all of this, we should take a second and talk about how critics like responded to this movie in 1997, which is, most of them liked it, actually. Most of them liked it a lot. Roger Ebert was like, hey, yeah, I was Austin Powers in my day. But the Washington Post really was wrestling with this idea of like, can you talk about sex in the 60s way in the 90s? And this is what they wrote. Austin Powers, international man of mystery, takes the crease out of James Bond's tuxedo, but with much less style than recent parodies of the bikini and Beretta genre. In fact, the originals were spoofs in their own way, too, unless you really believe that secret agents look more like Sean Connery than Aldrich Ames. Um, Side note, I didn't know what that meant, you know, uh, and I looked up Aldrich Ames in the 90s. He was like this KGB agent who was pretending to be a CIA agent. He was like a real double agent and he looked like a major dork and he is actually still alive and still in prison. But she's basically saying at this point, like most spies are dorks. It's ridiculous that they would even look like Sean Connery and that we'd ever take that seriously. Anyway, end note. Uh, Austin Powers devotes more time to pursuing the daughter of his retired partner than to stopping the demented doctor. It is the unfortunate young woman's job to introduce this adult-pated sex maniac to the sad realities of sex in the 90s. Hardly phased by her warning, Powers is off to make Whoopi and to pass a bit of gas in a hot tub with the villainous. Octopussy practically comes off as a feminist manifesto by comparison. Last year's Bond movie, Goldeneye, was definitely hipper, funnier, and more aware of its own politically incorrect shortcomings. For that matter, so was Casino Royale, and that was 30 years ago. Talking about the first Casino Royale, that spoof of of James Bond that came out right around the uh, Sean Connery era. I thought that review was interesting because she's sort of like, the 60s are adult-pated sex maniacs, but the 90s are sad and grim. And it just seems like sex sucks in both decades. I mean, sure. Yeah, I guess that may- <laughs> Yeah, maybe maybe we just romanticize all this stuff too much. Maybe we do. But I think her throwing down of the gauntlet of the old Casino Royale, I think is a good a good excuse for us to follow this thread through and do the Daniel Craig Casino Royale to see how much Austin Powers fucked him and where they had to take this character after that. I uh, would love to see that and I would love to see Truly, the writers' meetings were like, ah, oh, we can't do that in Casino Royale because Austin Powers did that. Like, how different <laughs> was that movie? I, I call bullshit on that. But anyway, I am excited to take a look at Casino Royale. Uh, I'm excited to spend this much time with Bond. Uh, so, Amy, let's take a listen to the trailer. This may be too much for a blunt instrument to understand. Any thug can kill. I want you to take your ego out of the equation. So you want me to be half monk, half hitman? I knew it was too early to promote you. Well, I understand double O's have a very short life expectancy. (laughs) 
All right, uh, Casino Royale is available wherever you stream your movies, but you can also check out your local public library. They have amazing services that allow you to download these movies for free right on uh, whatever device you want to use. You can just take them out. They're there for you. That's what the library does. Uh, now, Amy, we have some shirts in our store, which are pretty badass. I love our Florence pew, 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 pew shirt, which is out and about. And if you're in L.A. Uh, this week... Uh, you know, as a matter of fact, tonight, if you're listening on Thursday, Amy and I are uh, live at Dynasty Typewriter doing Love It or Leave It. You can listen to that podcast coming up. And also, I'll be live at Largo on Friday doing an improv show with uh, some great people. I love it. And you're one of those great people. And oh, Ellen, Anne Helen Pearson, who I used to work with at MTV, she's going to be there with us. And I'm very excited to get to hang out with her in person. Cannot wait. All right. Well, Amy, next week we will watch Casino Royale and we will finally kill James Bond. If you like listening to Unspooled, well, you have a lot of people to thank. As a matter of fact, you can thank our producers, Josh Richmond and Devin Bryant, our executive producers, Cody Fisher and Colin Anderson, our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds. Our theme song is by Michael Cassidy. Kim Troxell does all of our fan art. You can follow us on Apple Podcasts and make sure you rate and review us on Apple and Amazon or wherever you rate and review podcasts. Plus, you can follow us for the latest up to the minute discourse on Twitter and Instagram, but also on the Paul Shear Discord, where we host a very exclusive Unspooled chat. It's nice. It's fun. Social media. If you want an Unspooled t-shirt, go to tpublic.com slash unspooled. You can also check out Podswag for exclusive merch. Get back episodes of the show and bonuses like Screen Test if you subscribe to Stitcher Premium. And check out the official API, that's the Amy and Paul Institute list, at unspooledpod.com. 